Well, good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 123, Psalm 123, we are continuing our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalm 120 through 134, and so we are moving our way through a Psalm a Sunday, and it'll be uh, broken up when we reach uh, Christmas. We will take a little break from these Psalms of Ascent at Christmas time, but then we'll pick it up after the first of the year, Lord willing. Remember, we learned that from the book of James. If the Lord so wills, we will do that. And so uh, that's why I call my preaching plan my improbable preaching plan, because it always seems to change. And so that's okay. That's good. Uh, I realized uh, this morning, well, this week, as I was uh, working on the message, that uh, I have a long history, longer than I like to remember. And uh, uh, my dad was an engineer, and he worked in the space program in the 1950s and early 60s before we moved to Montana. And so I've always had an interest in the space program, but it was kind of a shock to me to realize that Apollo 13 occurred in 1970. In April of 1970, the eyes of the world were fixed to their television sets. If you were alive at that time, you perhaps remember this, but remember Apollo 13, part of the moonshot program. It was supposed to make a lunar landing, but there was an explosion on board, and they circled the moon and headed back to Earth. And uh, it was a very desperate time, and we were unsure if those three men, those three astronauts, Jim Lavelle, Fred Halls, and Jack Swigert, would make it back alive. And uh, it was a very tense time, and of course, it's been reenacted a number of times, but most famously in the uh, Apollo 13 movie of 1995. Uh, I was going to show that clip for you this morning, but it included some curse words, and I thought, well, I don't want to take that on myself here, so... (laughs) So if you want to watch it, it's on YouTube, and you can watch Apollo 13. Uh, but uh, it is a powerful clip about what they faced. And to read about it, to read the uh, uh, NASA archives about Apollo 13 is very enlightening and amazing about our space program. But they had to shut down because of this. And returning to Earth, they conserved power by shutting down the onboard computer that steered the aircraft. And so the astronauts basically had to manually or hand steer the aircraft back to Earth. If they messed up, they would miss Earth and continue on out into space and never to return. Uh, They had to do a 39-second burn of the main engines to make sure they stayed on course to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, if you remember at least that movie, uh, they had to have a fixed point to look at at the little window in that uh, space module. And, of course, the Earth was there. And that's what Jim Lovell and the others uh, focused on for those 39 seconds as they burned those engines to keep them in the right course. That was their reference point to avoid disaster. And, of course, we know it was successful. And they did return, and they were focusing on Earth, and they avoided the disaster and, and certain death by coming back like that. Well, you know, Scripture reminds us that we are on a journey And it may not be as dramatic as that, but yet it is just as important in each one of your lives. We are on a spiritual journey for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are on a journey with a destination. And just as earth was those astronauts' destination, it was home, it was safety for a believer in Jesus Christ. We are on a journey. We are essentially on a pilgrimage through life. And our destination, our fixed object, of course, is God himself, is Jesus Christ 
And so scripture reminds us that to finish our mission successfully, if you will, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, 2. So we need to keep our focus on God in this journey, this day-to-day life that we live, and all the, all the joys and all of the adversities, everything we face in the human life, to remember that it is bigger than who we are and what we're going through. These Psalms of Ascent that we're going through, beginning in uh, 120 of Psalms, and we're now to 123, but there is a pattern that we see in these Psalms. There's a pattern, first of all, like 120 was a psalm that communicated the distress the people were in. Psalm 121 expresses their confidence, even in the midst of their distress, they have confidence in God. And in Psalm 122, then their security as they arrive. Remember, these pilgrims in ancient times in Israel were commanded in Exodus by God to go up to the Temple Mount uh, three times a year to go at... uh, the Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the Day of Atonement in the fall. And so they would travel up in tribal members, family members, and they would go up in unison, and they would sing these songs, basically, as they went up to Jerusalem to worship at the Temple Mount. Of course, in David's time, the temple was not built yet, but by Solomon's time, Solomon had built the temple, this beautiful temple there. And so there's this pattern of distress, confidence, and security. And I think that is a picture of life itself. We are under distress from time to time, but yet where does our confidence lie in the midst of adversity and distress or despair? And then security when we recognize that God is in control of all these things. Beginning in Psalm 123, it repeats this pattern. 123 is a psalm of distress. They're expressing despair and distress in their situation. 124, we'll see they're confident in who and what God is. And 125, they will be secure again. And so it's this repetitive thing that goes on through these psalms of ascent, at least the first four sets of three. And then there's an aspect, the last three uh, are talking about the arrival, the arrival on Mount Zion or Jerusalem there. And so Psalm 123, you know, each psalm has a historical context. Some of them are very clear about stating the historical context of when that psalm and what it was written about. Uh, But Psalm 123, we're left guessing a little bit. And probably there's a couple things that could have been written in the time of King Hezekiah when the Assyrians were attacking uh, before the northern kingdom was carried off into captivity by the Assyrian kingdom. It could have been during that time that this was written. I think a better time is after the exile when the the Jewish people returned from Babylon after 70 years of captivity because Israel suffered ridicule, scorn, and, and from their Gentile neighbors, we read about that in the book of Nehemiah, especially in chapters 2 and 4. But it's not until in this Psalm 123 that we read verse 4 that we understand that there is lament going on. There is distress. There is despair. Verse 4 says, Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. This is a psalm of lament. Remember, there are forms in the psalms. There are different structures, and lament is one of those genres or forms of poetry that is used throughout the Psalms. And so it could have been during King Hezekiah or during the post-exile time. And I tend to believe it was during the uh, return to the land of Israel after the exile in Babylon. And so the Psalm speaks about a God who is enthroned in heaven. 
And uh, Ezra and Nehemiah from that time also reflect that God is enthroned in heaven and that the hand of God is strong and is at work among his people. We're going to see that here in a moment. Uh, The psalm begins in first person singular. You know, it's good to pay attention when you read your Bibles to the pronouns. And in this psalm, he says, to you, I will lift up my eyes, the first person singular. But then it moves into uh, third person plural, uh, our or second person, our eyes look to the Lord our God in verse 2. And so it's a communal song. It is a communal expression of lament about what is going on in their lives. And it's a lament of the people. And so they were being slandered. They were being ridiculed, persecuted. Where do they turn to for help? And we're going to see that through this psalm, that they were turning to the right place. And for you and I today, you know, evangelicalism, Christianity, Christendom is under attack uh, greatly, and uh, if you pay attention to any social media or the news, you know that that's the case. We're fairly insulated here in our community, and yet uh, there are believers around the world, especially in some foreign countries, that are greatly persecuted and oppressed. I even think of uh, mainland China, where we have connections, and they are being oppressed greatly there. And so there is always this uh, uh, work of Satan to destroy the church and destroy us. And so as we look at this psalm, as we open this psalm and look at it, first of all, we are to look in faith at God's protection. This is one of the lessons we learn. The psalm gives us three answers of where we look. Notice in the first uh, two verses, uh, the word eyes is mentioned four times. I lift up my eyes, verse 1. Verse 2, behold the eyes of his servants and the eyes of the maid. And in the end of verse 2, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. So there's this aspect of our perspective of our focus in life, especially when life seems to be off the rails. We seem to be derailed in that sense. And it happens from time to time. Uh, Surprising loss, surprising adversity can always come into our life at a moment's notice. We do not know. So we look in faith to God's protection. Back in Psalm 121, we emphasize the fact of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. And there's two words we don't use very often. It's sovereignty. We throw that out there. But then there is the aspect where God works out his total control. Sovereignty means he's in control of all things in all places at all times. But he works it out through his providential care of his plan. Providence is the outworking of the declaration that he is a sovereign God. By the mere definition of God, even philosophers will agree to this, that God has to be all-powerful over all things at all times and all places. Otherwise, he is not God, whatever we design that God to be. And so the Bible is very clear about that, that God is sovereign and he's working out his providential plan. And we looked at Jerry Bridges' definition of providence, which I think is the best because it's the shortest I came across. And I can pretty much remember that. But Bridges uh, defined this or developed this definition of God's providence. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Let me read that again. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Notice the absolute terms, constant care, absolute rule, all creation. Nothing, not even the smallest virus escapes his care and control. But notice also the twofold objective of that definition. 
of God's providence. It's for his glory and the good of his people, the good of his people. Those two objectives are never diametrically opposed to each other. They are always operating in harmony according to what God is doing. It doesn't mean we understand fully God's providence because we certainly don't. When we see events in our lives and in the world that seem to make no sense, uh, we start to question, is God really in control? Yet the Bible does declare that. And here we talk about his protection, his sovereignty. Uh, the psalmist starts, to you I lift up my eyes. Remember back in, in uh, Psalm 121, that's how that begins. I will lift up my eyes, but notice the two objectives. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains in 121. In 123, I will lift up my eyes, <clears throat> O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And so this direct lifting up his eyes to God himself, to his sovereignty, to his protection. It begins by placing our perspective in the right spot. You know, we human beings are very adept at trying to solve all our own problems and other people's problems as well, aren't we? Uh, we, we we're sure if we just do something right or do something different, we can fix everything. And yet there are those times, just like this psalmist is declaring here, where it is basically out of our control and we cannot control that. With human eyes, of course, and remember the, the Psalms are Hebrew poetry, and so they're full of metaphor and simile and figures of speech. And uh, with our human eyes, of course, we cannot see God on his throne, but with the eyes of faith, we believe him as he's described in the word. In fact, in uh, another part of Psalms, my eyes are towards the Lord. It's a, just a, a metaphor, a picture that we look to him with our spirit, with our soul. We look to the Lord, it means to trust him, to turn our problems over to him by faith. Hebrews 12, 2 again, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It doesn't mean we actually see Jesus, but it does mean that we keep our focus in the correct place, because when we start looking at ourselves, we become distressed. And when we look at the world, we become depressed. But we look at Jesus and we become just really blessed, if you will. And the focal point of our attention, the second part of that verse 1, we are looking at the one who is enthroned in the heavens. His throne is a throne of grace. His throne is mentioned many times in the book of Psalms, God's throne. And uh, for us today, the throne of grace in Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about God sitting on his throne of grace and that grace is unmerited favor. But the life of faith begins by looking at the all-sufficient one, the one who has the power and the strength and the knowledge to take care of everything, and he ultimately will take care of everything and make it all right. And it's by faith trusting him for our salvation, Isaiah chapter 45. The life of faith continues as we keep our eyes upon Jesus Christ. You know, it's a day-to-day -day growing experience, and it will climax with faith becoming sight when we see Jesus Christ face-to-face -face in glory, when we meet him after this life is over, after he either takes the church away in the rapture or when we physically pass away, but yet our soul and spirit live on. And so God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people, nor does he ever seek the good of our, his people at the expense of his glory. That is important to remember that. So where we place our gaze when we're in trouble on this journey of the Christian life is critical. And the psalmist knew it, and I think you know it too, 
that we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Verse 2 tells us about God's hand, God's hand. If you did a study about a hand, especially the right hand in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, you see it's always representative of power. It is always representative of position and power. So we need to look in faith to God's power, to his hand. In verse 2, notice what he says there. Behold, the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master and the eyes of the maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. And so he's using a well-known picture in that culture, in that society, that there were servants and there were masters, and these servants would look to their master's hand. In eastern countries at that time, masters often commanded their servants not by speech, but by means of a hand signal. So the servant would keep their eye fixed upon whoever was their master because they wanted to make sure his hand, if he gave them a signal, they knew what to do in the direction of their work. But also the master's hand was a source of provision. They depended upon the master for their day-to-day sustenance. And then finally, the master's hand protected them in times of, of danger. So he was not only their provider, but he was also their protector in times of danger. The New Jewish Publication Society translation reads, they follow their master's hand. They are focused on it. They are focused on it. So it is with Christians today, really, because Jesus Christ is our director. He directs us through his word. He is our provider. He is our protector. And all come from the master's hand, and that's the hand that never fails. Even though we question it from time to time, the word declares it never does. As I prayed earlier, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, Proverbs 21.1. You need to remember that coming this next election cycle, by the way. So God's feeble remnant in Jerusalem did not have to fear the nations around them. Remember, they were surrounded by pagan nations. That's the difference between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. Israel was located in a geographical location. They were surrounded by pagans. But the church now, the church beginning in Acts 2, is worldwide. And we are part of every nation of the world. And so God has a special purpose in that. So as the servants focused on their master's hand, we focus on Jesus Christ's hand, on his power, on his strength. Why? Until he is gracious to us is what the New American Standard translates that. Uh, Some of your translations will translate it mercy, which may be a little bit more accurate to the Hebrew word that's used there. Remember, grace in the New Testament is receiving what we don't deserve, basically a very brief uh, definition. But mercy is not getting what we do deserve uh, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of Jesus Christ, that is the full flower of God's mercy and grace. He has given us what we don't deserve, and he has not given us what we do deserve. And of course, the wages of sin is death, and all people are sinners. And so we have received mercy. And so God, these, the, the psalmist is looking to God's graciousness, to his mercy in the midst of despair and distress and lament. Thirdly, we need to rely on God's provision, verses 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. Scriptures teach us that we must believe that God is completely sovereign, carrying out his providential plan if we are to trust him when we are in the throes of adversity. Look at verse 3. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. And so it's a prayer for mercy. This is a prayer of lament. Uh, They're lamenting and they're asking for relief. And they're saying, 
bring us more mercy, mercy. You know, sometimes people ask the question, what difference did the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem those 2,000 years ago make in the world? There's a historian named Rodney Stark who argues that there was one huge factor that helped capture the attention of the ancient world, Christianity's revolutionary emphasis on mercy. And he writes these words, In the midst of squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security, and it all started with Jesus. In contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect, and pity was a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. Thus, humans must learn to curb the impulse to show mercy. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered, the ancients would say. Showing mercy was a defect of character unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who had not yet grown up. That was the moral climate in which Christianity was birthed, and it taught that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. And it's totally contrary and countercultural at the time, and it still is, because we seem to be very strong on justice and very weak on mercy and grace in that sense. Uh, We are not the only subjects of the king, in verse 1, and servants of the master. We are also children of a gracious father, that grace-giving father who hears the cries of his children and comes to his aid. He has grace and mercy for every situation. And in those post-exilic times when these people were returning from captivity in Babylon, and many had been born in Babylon, they had never seen Israel in Jerusalem But these chosen people were being maligned and ridiculed and opposed, but God gave them grace. They needed to finish what God had set out before them and be faithful in that. The enemy, their enemy, was smug and complacent, but God was not at work in their midst. He was working in the midst of his people. And God is working in our midst. We have endured no end of contempt, basically, the end of verse 3 states. We are enduring contempt. I think the NIV said that. And so this verse 4 is the prayer of lament. The nation of Israel was continuing. And one very special day, the promised Messiah was born into a little town in Bethlehem to bring the promised Messiah to the nation Israel. At the end of verse 4, verse 4, our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Now, you personally may not have experienced any scoffing about your faith or contempt about your faith. But I think it is becoming more and more prevalent in our culture. I don't know if you watched it. I didn't watch it. I read the reviews. But CNN held a town hall on equality in Los Angeles Thursday night. And there were nine front runners for the presidency who were there being interviewed and asked questions about equality. And, of course, the whole purpose of that was to affirm that we are going to legalize immorality. And uh, that is the push, and that is where it's going in fact, there were, uh, religious freedom was barely, barely addressed. And so it doesn't matter if you're an evangelical, a Roman Catholic, uh, a Latter-day Saint. Uh, everybody of faith in this country needs to be aware and have their eyes open this coming election uh, because they are bringing forth some pretty strange things. And so uh, you need to maybe go back and read the reviews of that to understand how serious this is. 
but uh, and it's, it's, it's more than just about tax-exempt status, but it's about attack, a con- concerted attack, especially on Christianity and people of faith within our country. But Israel knew that, and Israel knew they were being attacked and knew they were being scoffed at and condemned. And, uh, <clears throat> but because we belong to Jesus Christ, if you've believed in him for everlasting life, you belong to him, and he is sovereign and providential, and he knows all about this, and he is a great God. And uh, you do not have to be embarrassed or start looking for a place to hide. There is grace available from the throne of grace of God. He is the God of all grace, and so we need to lift our eyes to him and not put our eyes on, on uh, uh, other things. Um, when my mother was still alive, and she was uh, living in assisted living, and she always had, her mind was always sharp, and she was complaining one day, and this was back in 2016, 15, uh, really complaining uh, about what was going on politically. And I said, Mom, how are you spending your day? And she said, well, I've watched this newscast. I watched this newscast. I said, Mom, give it a break. You need to focus on Jesus Christ because it can be, it can be really debilitating when we just focus on what uh, the media is telling us or, and uh, what's going on, or even social media. We need to learn how to be a funambulist. You ever heard of a funambulist? It comes from a Latin term, which means rope walker. Rope walker. And, of course, we know them better as tightrope walkers in circuses and on television. But that's a special word who, uh, of these people who display amazing skill of balance on a high wire, the funambulance, funambulists. And in his book, Dan Thurman, who is a business leader and a funambulist, wrote a book called Off Balance on Purpose. He writes about these daredevils that get up on the high wire. He says they're constantly making small critical adjustments, lifting their free leg as a counterweight, raising and lowering arms, adjusting their pole. A good funambulist is never truly at rest or on balance. As a matter of fact, Thurman writes, they are perpetually off balance, making adjustments that bring them through the point of balance, only to readjust on the other side. Most of their movements are so subtle that they are imperceptible to the audience. They make it all look effortless. But Thurman says it's not as easy as it looks. So how do they maintain their balance? He continues, when my new students step onto the rope or cable, they almost always begin with the same flawed game plan. They stare downward at the wire to ensure that they have the proper footing. And so they fall. So what is the solution to this dilemma? If you have ever closely watched professional tightrope walkers, you may recall that they never look down at their feet or the wire or either side at their hands or their balance pole. Rather, they keep their head up. They look forward towards the goal, the faraway platform directly in front of them. So if you're off balance today, if you feel persecuted, slandered, all of that, uh, you need to be a funambulance. You need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes, I'm going to close with a passage out of Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. I want you to remember this. First of all, remember that we're always, the world always wants to push us off balance. And so how do we react? We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Isaiah 30, 18 says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. 
How blessed are those who long for him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. We don't know who wrote it, but we know that it is a beautiful piece of poetry and it is a lament to you. And we know that you know each and every situation, whether we were believers living in mainland China or here under the relative freedom that we have in this country. Lord, may we always keep our eyes fixed upon you and not put our trust in man or in horses or in power. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Would you please stand as we sing this new song one more time?